Welcome to the Pete Primo Show, episode 42, Why Manners Matter with Doug Stewart. And I'm just going to pay the bills real quick and we're going to get into it. This show is sponsored by Sell a Million, my book, 101 Tips on How to Make More Money if you own a furniture or a mattress store. And the best compliment I ever got on this book was from Doug Stewart, who is here. And he said, take the word furniture or mattress. And this is just a great marketing book for any business anywhere. So thank you, Doug. And my other sponsor who pays the big bills, the Mattress Industry Network on Facebook. The Mattress Industry Network on Facebook is the only group anywhere that I know of who is run by retailers for retailers. So if you own a furniture or a mattress store, you sell mattresses at retail, you really owe it to yourself to join this group. It's a free group. It's over a thousand members strong now. And just go to facebook.com slash groups slash mattress industry network. Join today. It is a great group. And thank you, Steve, for your support of this group of uh, everything that you do. The mattress, mattress industry network's core values are helping each other to build, market, sell, and succeed in the mattress industry. If you don't belong to it and you are and you do sell mattresses, you got to join. Doug, welcome to the show. Pete, what's up, man? How are you? Dude, I'm going back to 2015 when we used to do my first show together. Yeah. Uh, we were doing podcasts when podcasts weren't cool, man. Yeah, yeah. I don't I don't know where it was where it was going, but it was um it was certainly a good experience. So, Doug, I spent the weekend reading this book, Five and a Half Mentors, uh, by you. And I have to say this. Great job, my friend. Thank you. Great job. Do you mind if I read the what you wrote in the book that you sent me? No, go for it. Made me cry. Pete, I'm not sure if this book would have ever been written if you had not set an example with Sell a Million. Thank you for your friendship. Blessings, Doug. Um, you have blessed me in more ways than one, Doug, and you don't even really know how much. But I am going to start to show off with this. I would like you to define mentor because I think that sometimes we get the idea of someone sitting at the foot of a master, almost an apprenticeship type thing. And that's a mentor and that's the only mentor. And I, I want you to kind of broaden the definition and give us your definition of mentor. And then we'll start getting into the meat of the book. Yeah. So, so I think Pete, the thing that helped me the most was making the delineation between mentorship and apprenticeship, you know, like apprenticeship is really important, but it requires a commitment between two people, kind of like the, the master and the, the teacher and the student, right? Well, mentorship is a bit different because the way I, I've seen mentorship is mentorship is much more of an attitude and it's much more, it's much more like self-care than it is being cared for. Right. So we think about the way we think about self-care today in a lot of ways. This and I wrote about this a little bit in the book. We think about escapism, right? Self-care is like, you know, going and getting a massage or or like going shopping or like taking a nap or taking a vacation. And and that, that stuff is important. Um, and then there's the other part of self-care that's like perennial self-care, like the the type of self-care that 
you look, your future self will thank you for. Um, and when, when the big shift for me in, in the way that I grew and developed and continue to grow and develop was really thinking about mentorship of, in terms of something that I was able to participate in if I made the choice and, that, and I could include everyone and everything in that process. And so I didn't need permission or another person necessarily to, to be able to get something out of um, being mentored by my, my surroundings, my experience, uh, and, uh, and, and, and even, even the people that uh, were obnoxious. So talk about the anti-mentor. That's where the half comes in from your book title. And I think that's an important place for us to start. I've never heard anyone discuss this. And that's one of the things that I love about everything that you do. You're almost a contrarian, but not quite. You're not a contrarian for contrarian's sake. You're just wired differently. And you really seek to understand and delineate and help clarify things for us. Things that we should do on our own, but we don't even do. And then a lot of times... Well, let me share this with the audience. Doug, years ago, on a podcast, became an anti-mentor for me. (laughs) So I'm a poor boy who grew up in Schenectady, New York. I believe in the past, before I met Doug Stewart, that I was a self-made man. And he said, there is no such thing as a self-made man. And I, my BS meter went a mile high. And I was like, what do you mean? What do you mean? I didn't have one paper route. I had two. And at one point I had three paper routes. I paid my way through school. I did this. I did that. I, I worked three jobs. I ate, you know, a macaroni and cheese uh, and you guys would eat ramen noodles, but I ate macaroni and cheese. I didn't have an air conditioner. I was dirt poor. I made it on my own. And after I got done with that little internal rant, I saw a picture. And it was my dad. And he said, you can do anything you want to do. But, but you're going to have to work for it. We're not the Rockefellers, honey. We're not the Rockefellers. You're going to have to work really hard. But you live in America. You can do anything you want to do, but you're going to have to work really hard. And then I said to myself, oh my God, Doug's right. I was blessed by a mother and a father who supported me. We didn't have any money. Make no bones about that. The reason I got the paper route is because I had one pair of jeans and I wanted another pair of jeans. We didn't have the money for a second pair of jeans. So I realized that Doug was right. There is no such thing as a self-made man. Of course, my heart breaks for everybody that doesn't have that situation, but I digress. So the anti-mentor can be somebody that you absolutely can't stand or somebody that just causes you to think or an experience. Um... And what makes a difference, Doug, between whether we learn or not from that anti 
mentor? Because I think it's important. Yeah, I mean, I, I think Pete, a, a lot of it really has to do with with our with our perspective on 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 what it means, you know. And it's 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 like you you mentioned, I'm not a contrarian for contrarian sake. I, I don't I don't try to be. Sometimes <laughs> sometimes I am, um, and and I have to I have to watch that pretty closely. Um, but you know, in general, I, I think language matters. You know, like here, here, quick a quick recent example. So so my son just turned three, so this was probably six months ago. He was a little delayed in his speech. Um, and so it was something we were, we were really working with him on and thinking about. And it, it turned out that there was a particular part of the day where he always seemed to be uh, more frustrated, more testy, more likely for a bit of a meltdown. And we couldn't figure out why, like why this time of the day? And it was normally just like uh, just in the morning after breakfast. And, there was one thing that changed with him that caused him to stop having that meltdown at that time. And it was two words. The two words were miss you, miss you, M-I-S-S-Y-O-U, miss you. And what turned out was my son would get, he would miss me when I would go into my office after breakfast for work. But before he was able to say it, he didn't have the language to be able to communicate it. So it stayed inside of himself. And so because he couldn't say it, it caused frustration. It caused confusion. He would get irritated much more easily. So language and us being able to, to, to speak out what our experience is, is, is such an important thing. And so for me, you know, that's why I take words like mentorship and, uh, and apprenticeship. And I want to set them beside each other and go, okay, precisely what does this mean? So that sort of leads me to this idea of anti-mentor. Like in the beginning, th- well, this, this concept has really evolved for me. Like in the beginning, it was like anti-mentor is like pick the people around you that, that are the most obnoxious or that you don't want to be like. And then use that as an example and then try to reverse engineer. So how did they get there and how can I keep myself from going there, right? But as it's evolved, it has also been people that have a different perspective, that come from different places, that see the world differently. Um, and I think the biggest thing in the, in the way to sort of unlock the opportunity to develop from those people is knowing that it's not personal. Like they're not after you. Uh, and even the times that it feels personal, it's still not because, and, and this is a question that as I've, as I've coached people over the years, I've, I've, I've asked them this question. Like if, if in that moment where they were mean spirited or hurtful, if you would have, if, if the Lord would have come down and paused the entire situation, plucked you out of it and replaced you with someone that's just a lot like you, would they have treated that other person the same way? And the answer is, Always yes, <laughs> right? So now that doesn't mean you're not at fault for something or you, you're not deserving of the treatment you're getting or you don't have an apology to give. But what it means is, is that people make decisions and react and respond to things based on who they are, not based on who you are, right? So once you know that, you can go, ah, okay, so I don't have to, I don't have to let my ego get involved in this because they're not really doing this to me. They're just doing this, in front of me. (laughs) Like I just happen to be the person that's on the other end of this thing. So I can ask myself, so, so what is it that I can learn from this? And, 
And then also interrogating my own reality enough to go like, okay, so do I believe this thing? So I'm having this disagreement. Maybe it's political, maybe it's religious, maybe it's business, whatever it is. I'm having this disagreement. I can, if it's not personal, then I can ask myself, why is it that I believe this and they believe that? Because there's so many beliefs that we have that we've inherited or that are convenient or that work in our maybe social or economic or professional bubble, but it doesn't work everywhere. Right. And so I should be able to have the integrity to, to, to look at things that make me uncomfortable or that, uh, or that, or that differ from the way I see the world and be able to look at, look at them somewhat objectively and go, maybe, maybe I have something to learn here. Right. The only way you can grow is if you're open to growth. And uh, that's something that, you know, is really at the the heart and soul of this book, five and a half manners, how to learn, grow and develop from everyone and everything. There's always something to learn in, in, in the good and the bad. Um, And, you know, it takes a, a certain amount of courage to challenge your own beliefs within your own head and to really open up and question because a life where you don't question yourself isn't worth living. You have to question yourself and you have to question everything from your most fundamental beliefs to your most out there beliefs. Always question and always grow. I mean, we're put uh, put here to grow and to become more than we are. I love this. I'm going to read this word for word. This isn't actually in, in your introduction. And it, it is something that there are people out there for whatever reason, there could be hundreds of reasons, and it's one of my worst fears, and I know it to be true, that there are people out there who could be so much more than they are, but they don't. And here's your permission slip from Doug Stewart. I'm going to read this word for word, so forgive me. By the power vested in me from the divine creator of the universe, I, Doug Stewart, officially give, fill in your name, full permission to pursue your passions and to accept yourself as the innately great and priceless person you are. From this day forward, you will double down on your strengths, forgive your weaknesses, and continue to see every victory as an opportunity for gratitude and every failure as an opportunity for wisdom. Guys, that's on page 15. And before that, there's a great little exercise that's literally, literally worth the price of this book. And by the way, anyone who likes my YouTube channel and makes a comment is going to get a free book because I have two and I only need one. So what do you say, Doug? What, uh, what do you want to clean up from there? Well, you know, the, the permission slip thing is, is, is funny because it's, it's something that I looked for, for, for a very long time in my life. You know, I look for someone to give me resources, to give me an opportunity to give me, you know, and, and, and what I found is that, that to get the best mentors, 
you have to do things that are attractive to the mentors. You know, like I've been blessed with some of, in, 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 in my, in my opinion, anyway, some of the best mentors that I could have, that I could have ever asked for, but they only showed up once I started doing my work. And this is kind of the punchline of the whole book, right? I, I, I lay out five and a half mentors and the final mentor, the fifth mentor is the only person that I'm really talking about, right? Like the fifth mentor, the worldview mentor, that's, that's very much the traditional idea of having the, the Mr. Miyagi or the Yoda. Like, but the thing is, is that person doesn't show up until you are, you are, you have an attitude of the other four and a half mentors. Right. Um, and just, just, a, just a couple other points that I, that I thought about while you were talking, it's, it's a, you know, it's qu- questioning is such an important thing because, you know, I, I strongly believe that anything that can't be questioned can't be trusted. You know, and that, and that's, that's, that applies to everything. And so if I can't question it, then I can't trust it. And that, that goes for my belief system that goes for people around me that goes for, you know, what I believe about like absolute truth and and total reality. You know, like I have to be, we have to be able to question and anything that will not allow a question is something that we in general can't trust. Um, the other thing that I thought about, Pete, going back to the self-made, you know, the self-made person conversation is, you know, something that I, that I tell my 10-year-old my is that you can be anything you want to be that you're good at. You know, like telling our kids, like, you can be anything you want. Like, that's maybe the worst thing that we could tell them, you know, like, you can be anything. Well, no, you can't. Like, I can't. I'm six foot seven. I'm 240 pounds. I can't be a jockey in the Kentucky Derby, no matter how hard I work, no matter how much I want to be it. Like I'm, I'm massively dyslexic. I can never be a, 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 an English professor. Like there's just things I can't be, but I can capitalize on the, on the talents that I was given if I'm willing to put in the work. Right. So like your talent is something that you didn't, you didn't give yourself. This is things that, you know, but then the question is, is, are you willing to work, do the work to turn that talent into skill? You know, like I was, I was talking to a friend the other day and I've, I've gotten to a point in my life where um, I'm far enough in my career to not be a, the kid anymore, but I'm not far enough to be, uh, to be the elder, right? I'm kind of like somewhere in the middle, right? And I was telling them that it was interesting that no one has talked about my potential in a really long time. Like early in my career, they talked about like, oh, you have great potential, but nobody says that anymore. Now what they're saying is they're asking me for my production. And so they talked about my talent, my, my, my possibilities, my potential in the beginning. But there comes a point where people go, okay, talent's not enough. Have you done the work? Have you developed yourself in a, to a point where the talent is now something that can be, um, that can be utilized in a real-world way and so that you can demonstrate the skill that's associated with the talent, but you can't be anything, but you can be anything that you're good at <laughs> if you're willing to do the work. <laughs> right? Absolutely. Absolutely. So, rant over. I'll step off my soapbox so we can get on. No, you can keep, you, <laughs> dude, you can keep going. I'm never going to get to the end of my questions. No, I made my piece with this before we even started. I, there's too much that I'm curious about and too much that I want. I'm never going to fit it in in an hour. So uh, if you have anything you want to keep going on, go ahead. If not, I'm going to ask you about Sarah Baker. 
Yeah, let's talk about Sarah. Let's, uh, you know, set up Sarah Baker and why she's important. And um, I, I've heard this before. You went into more depth in the book. And, and Doug, I have to say something to you. You, in this book, really open yourself up more than I've ever seen you. Uh, and I want to compliment you on that because uh, some of the things that you talk about aren't easy things to talk about. Uh, but Sarah Baker, I mean, she's like an angel on earth. And it was very interesting to me that she was the exact human being that you needed at that exact time. And she was there. And then before she could become a crutch, she was gone. And it was almost like, wow, it's, you know, anyway, go ahead. Tell, tell us about Sarah Baker and why she's important and why she's in the book. So I don't think I've ever talked about it this way, but Sarah, Sarah was not very nice. <laughs> Sarah, Sarah wasn't nice. She was kind. And the, the difference between those, those, two, those two words really matters. So when I think about nice people, I, I can't, it, it is my least favorite. I would rather be around, I would rather be around cruel people than nice people. And so what I mean by that is, is so as, as an example, and I think I'm, I talked about this in the book a little bit, but when I think about nice people, it's like you go to lunch with a nice person and the conversation is nice. There's nothing, there's nothing that might make you uncomfortable. They stay away from the, the, the hot topics, you know, so it's, it's nice, it's comfortable, it's cool. But as you're eating, you, you get a, like a big piece of spinach in, in the middle of your teeth. But there's, the person's so nice. They don't, you know, they don't want to make you uncomfortable. They don't want to make themselves uncomfortable. So they don't say anything. They just continue in this nice, this nice conversation. And then you get up having this nice time, feeling warm and fuzzy and good. And then you go to your next meeting or your next thing with this big friggin' piece of spinach in your teeth. Like that's what nice, and nice people never help us to be any better. The difference between nice and kind, you do that same lunch with a kind person and they are willing to make you uncomfortable. And they're even willing to make themselves uncomfortable for a short period of time in order for the best possible outcome. So they're willing to go, man, it's going to make me uncomfortable to tell, to tell Doug he's got this big freaking piece of spinach in his teeth, but it would be wrong of me not to. So they're going to go, look, hey, you got this little thing and we're both going to be a little embarrassed for a second, but ultimately it's better for me. And that's really who Sarah was. You know, she saw me as, an, as, a, as a person who had potential, um, but, but because of the way I thought about myself, and that's what she told me in the, in the very beginning. She told me, she looks at me, she, she points, and she was not, she was not happy. Like, she, she was, it was, it was a bit abrasive. And she says, you know what your problem is? Your problem is that you're a victim. And you're a victim of your own thinking. And she made a commitment to do everything that she could to change my mind. Um, and so she was my she was my college guidance counselor or, or academic advisor. I guess that's that's the that's the right term for what it was. Um, and I was in a position where I was about to get uh, to lose my basketball scholarship and get sent home um, after after just being there not even a year yet. 
um, because I, I had to make the the grade that the NCAA says that uh, that you know the high standard that the NCAA holds for the college athletes, which is a one point eight GPA, you know, and I had a one point four, and it wasn't because I wasn't trying, although it was because I wasn't trying. Um, that was part of it. The real reason I had a 1.4 is because I had decided who I was. You know, I had crippling dyslexia. I had, uh, I had sensory issues. I had narcolepsy. I had, uh, ADHD. I had, I mean, I had a list. I mean, I had a packet that, that, that told me all my disabilities and deficiencies. And so I decided, well, why would I try if this is just the way it's going to be, like I'm going to fail anyway. So I might as well enjoy, (laughs) enjoy the ride as long as I can be on it. Why would I, why would I spend the time trying? And then, and then that's worse, you know, not trying and failing. That doesn't hurt as much because I have an excuse. I got to try. It's just no big deal. But if I give it my all and I fail, that hurts, man. I didn't want to do that. You know, and Sarah, and it's interesting that some people can start out as being one mentor and end up as another. You know, Sarah really started out being sort of like an anti-mentor. She really challenged the way I thought. She challenged uh, my perspective. She challenged uh, me on how I saw myself, uh, and then and then ultimately ended up being more of a uh, of a more of a street view or a worldview mentor. Someone that I someone that I aspired to be. Um, and, you know, that, that was a pivotal moment in my life. That, that changed my life forever and really is where the whole concept of like, oh, I don't, I don't need some like, you know, successful person to make this big mentorship commitment. Like I can just ask some questions. I can read some books. I can watch a YouTube video. Like I, if, if I'm paying attention, there's meaning all around me. Like there's opportunities everywhere, you know, um, and so, Sarah, it was, it's interesting that, that sometimes we have an opportunity to be disrupted. Um, but if we see every disruption or every person that challenges us as an adversary, we will lose. You know, you have to see people that challenge you as, you know, it's, it's like I say, I think I, I think I write it like this in the book, but it's like, the people that that abandon us teach us to be resilient. You know, the people that, that challenge our thinking teach us to, to know what we believe, you know, the people that hurt us teach us to be strong. Like we, if, if we, if you have to go through pain, you might as well get a return on that investment. For our store owners that have an employee who is not performing up to snuff, I think there's a huge lesson here and I want you to go into it a little bit with Sarah. Sarah, took you where you were and moved you to a completely different space. But she reached out to where you were and understood that there were some limits there at the beginning that you shed completely, it appears. Um, But she took you where you were and It wasn't too awfully hard at the beginning, even though it sounds like it could have been very time consuming. Yeah. Yeah. You know, Pete, it reminds me of like people that like you'll hear people say like, you're perfect just the way you are. Like that's the dumbest thing. 
That's the absolute dumbest thing that you can say to someone. Like, of course, you're not perfect the way you are. Now, you're valuable the way you are, right? You're, you're innately and inherently valuable just the way you are, but you're not perfect and you're not the way you should be. You're, you're, it's great that you are where you are. But for me to look at my look at my kids or look at my like an employee or to look at a team member and go, you know, you're perfect just the way you are. Well, even if that were true, that will be untrue in three months because something will change and they will have needed to improve. Well, you actually saying that to someone poisons them. So that's, you just you just ruined it right there. <laughs> You just poison them, right? Because whenever we stop as human beings trying to grow and get better, that's the poison pill. That's where the death of your mind and your soul and achievement and everything happens right there. That when you're satisfied, you're complacent. And when you're complacent, you stop striving, right? The one thing that I see with you is you're always striving, you're you're striving, and I love the article that you wrote not too long ago. It's actually in the book too, about comfort zones, stretching the comfort zones, and you know, just telling someone to get outside of the comfort zone really isn't good enough, and really isn't a service to to anybody. Help them uh, really delineate how to and show them how to. Is invaluable. Is, is invaluable. So, talk about comfort zones a little bit. Yeah. So, so comfort zones for me have been have been really interesting because I think in, in general for us, like who who wants to go through a painful situation? Who wants to be uncomfortable? Like being uncomfortable sucks. So the question is about intended outcomes. Like for what? Like why should I get outside of my comfort zone? Like what's What's the outcome? What's in it for me? Like, what can I expect as 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 uh, in return for this? And so, what we tell, and particularly young people, we tell them to get outside of your comfort zones. Or these like little pithy sayings, like like success can be found right on the other side of your comfort zone and, and stuff like that. And so, what I found for, about a comfort zone is <clears throat> a comfort getting outside of my comfort zone has very little value if I'm just doing it for the sake of being outside of my comfort zone. Because we never perform at our best outside of our comfort zone. Like our best performance, our best, our, our most competency is inside a place where we have comfort. And now comfort and complacency are different. Complacency means laziness or, or being satisfied with where you are and not being willing to go any further. Being comfortable means you're at your maximum state of competency, meaning you know, if, if, if I have a, if I have a salesperson and I want them to close a $10,000 sale, who should I put there? Someone that's comfortable closing $10,000 sales, that's done it, that's earned the right, who is, who has demonstrated their competency in the real world or someone that is just, you know, who, who averages $700 sales and is going to be um, uncomfortable doing it. Of course, I'm going to pick the person that's more comfortable because they're more competent to do it. So if we want to get outside of our comfort zone, like let's know why. So it's not to be uncomfortable. It's to be more comfortable more often, right? So if I'm expanding my comfort zone, then I have a larger geography where I can be comfortable. If I'm outside of my comfort zone, I'm less competent. So the question is for, especially when you're talking about salespeople, you know, my grandfather, who was a brilliant businessman in his own right, and had a number of furniture stores uh, when I when I was when I was growing up. 
He would always say, you never practice on paying customers, never practice on paying customers. And so he believed that if I'm going to be uncomfortable, I'm going to be uncomfortable um, role-playing with the other salespeople. I'm going to be uncomfortable having, um, having new conversations and kind of bumping through, you know, uh, benefits and features with, uh, with him or with the rep or with someone else. But by the time I get to the com- customer, by God, be comfortable, <laughs> you know? And so that's, that's really the way I think about it. It's like, let's get, let's, let's do things. Let's get outside of our comfort. And, and I, the way I, I don't think I talk about it like this in the book, but one way that's evolved is like, it, this is oscillating outside six feet outside of our comfort zone in order to pull it just a little bit more to stretch it a little bit. So we have more space so that when we need to perform at our best, we, we can have confidence, which is a, maybe a different conversation. Maybe we talk about that in a minute. But confidence is, is not something you can choose. Confidence is something that you have to earn. You can't just decide to be confident. When people just decide they're going to be confident, that's at, at best, it's arrogance and at, at worst, it's ignorance. You know? And so as we expand our comfort zone and we're able to demonstrate um, those things to ourselves, we can earn the right to be confident in areas that we have evidence uh, of competence. Hey, I've got to read a quick chapter. It'll take a minute. And actually this is for you guys who have my book and Doug, I want you to ask me any questions about this or just tell me what your thoughts are. Um, And you've heard this before. It's on page 155. It's the very last thing I wrote in the book. It's actually in the bonus section, so it doesn't have a chapter number. It's your sales business. All great retail salespeople have one thing in common. They view their sales as their own business. This mindset allows them to make significantly more money than their peers. More importantly, these top producers are happy and usually enjoy great relationships in all aspects of their lives. Here's what they do early. They are usually the first into the store and the last to leave. Why? Because they work for themselves. They are willing to pay the price for success in full and in advance. Commitment. They are committed to success. They do things that other people are unwilling to do to achieve their goals. They go the extra mile to serve their customers and are rewarded with their loyalty. Integrity. Top producers always tell the truth. Their word is their bond. Their customers trust them and always ask for them. That's huge if you're a commission salesperson. Invest. Top salespeople invest in their business. They buy sales books. They go to seminars. If their company does not supply thank you cards, they buy their own. They are constantly looking for an edge to serve their customers better. They invest 3% of their earnings back into their sales business. If you are a serious sales pro and you're not investing 3% of your gross income back into your education, your self-development, you're cheating yourself. That's not in the book. I just gave that to you for free. You're welcome. Educate. They constantly want to learn. One of the most interesting observations I've made in the past 29 years, now it's been 39 years, is that top salespeople study other salespeople and try to learn from them as well as their reps. They use their downtime productively to improve their selling skills. Create. Top salespeople create their own traffic. 
They don't wait for the door to swing. They cultivate an army of loyal customers who buy only from them. They are constantly prospecting for customers. They do not wait for the door traffic. They talk to their neighbors or anyone that will listen to them about the store they work at. They promote their sales business. And the last one, execute. They follow, they follow up on their sales in every way. They always make sure everything is okay with their customers. You know you're on the right track when you are occasionally accused of being paranoid. When you start to become a, a uh, thorn in your company side, you're on the right track. In addition to sending a written thank you, they follow up with a phone call to make sure the customer is happy with their purchase. They also start the buying cycle for the next item by offering to keep their eyes open for the next purchase. Evaluate your sales business and consider it your own. What can you do to create more traffic for your business? What say you, Doug? What say you? It's it's interesting, Pete. I, I think what comes to me, what comes to mind for me is the difference between fault and responsibility. You know, it's like we we tend to think of those things as as the same. We think if it's their fault, it should be their responsibility to fix it. And that's cool if we're willing to be a victim of our circumstance. You know, like, <laughs> like you can completely You're right. That way and it gives you an out. Like it, it it and it can even feel good to to say like you know like when when are they going to give me this? When am I going to get that? When am I going to get a resource? When am I going to get, you know, when am I going to get support? Like whatever it is. But it's it's like okay, so it may be so let's talk about like if you're a salesperson working for a company, it may be their fault that they're not marketing well. It may be their fault for sure. But it's your responsibility to make a living and be successful and thrive where you are. And, you know, it's, it's the same thing when you're, if you're, if you're a store manager, you know what I mean? Like if you're managing a sales team, well, it might be the salespeople's fault that they're not doing the right things or saying the right things or sticking to the process, but it's your responsibility to have an impact and influence that to begin to improve or to get fixed, you know, like there's, there's so much, there's, I think where we really mess up, Pete, and I and I know this because I've I, I've done it and I still do it. Is anytime we're telling ourselves a story about our circumstance or the people around us, where in that story we're both the hero of the story and the victim of the story, we're on the wrong track. Right? We you can't be both. You have to pick. So are you the hero or the victim? And either way, you are your responsibility. So like grow where you're planted or go plant yourself somewhere else, but don't sit around and complain that you're not getting something that you need because you can do something else, you know? And, and it feels, it feels good to our ego to feel like we can blame someone else. But at the end of the day, even if it's someone else's fault, it's still our responsibility to fix it or adjust it or, 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 or move ourselves or do something, you know? And, and this is what, this is, this is the, my, the, the, the best thing, and maybe I should be careful with this one, but the best thing that Mark Kinsley's ever said to me, because, and I say that because he said a lot of really good things and I've, I've learned a lot from, from Mark over the years, but the best thing he's ever said to me is action reveals answers. Action reveals answers. 
And so if you think you know the answer, then take action so that you can verify the answer. If you don't know the answer, take action so, so, that, so that you can start to uncover it. But that's the difference between great salespeople and mediocre or failing salespeople is their willingness to take responsibility for themselves, their business. And um, regardless of whose fault it is that things aren't going their way. Right. And, and you know, today, to, to be fair, there is a lot of um, there are a lot of situations that are beyond the control of a sales pro on a retail floor. One of them is is inventory or lack of inventory. Of and while that is very definitive, how you approach that. If you if you if you put your head down and you slump over and you let all the energy go out of your body because you don't have inventory, I need you to go shop your competitor and I need you to find out that your comp- competitor has no inventory either. That's what I need you to do yeah. as a salesperson. And then yeah. what I need you to do is I need you to come back to reality and say this to yourself. We're all dealing with the same situation. It sucks. It's not easy to deal with. But what can I do to make this palatable for my customer and so that I can continue to support my family? Because at the end of the day, sales pros, you're there to support your family. You're there to produce results. And I I think that Doug's done a great job of talking about that. And we're really kind of veering off of the mentorship thing, but that's okay. This is important for, for right now. Yeah. Well, are, then, are, I, I would say right. Pete, we're right. We're right in the middle of it, you know, because yeah, yeah, we are right in the middle of it. Responsibility is the through line of development, you know, and like it, it's, like, and, and I would even maybe take it a step further than going to your competitor, like go on your system, go back to your warehouse, like wherever you, you, you would look and like know what you have in stock. Like this is a good first step because if you know what you have in stock, then you can then you can have a more coherent approach to navigating the the products that you have to offer the customer when they come in. And then and then being able to ask appropriate questions to know what their tolerance is for waiting. Like, do they need it today? Are they cool to wait six weeks? Are they cool to wait a month? Like, there's some things I'm willing to wait on, but all of that is expectation. But if you don't tell them and they think they're going to get it, it's, it's like when I order something from Amazon, I'm a Prime member. So if it's not on my doorstep in 48 hours, in two days, I'm freaking out. Like on day three, I'm losing my mind. Like, where is my stuff? I pay, I pay for you to be here. You've told me two days. So that's what I expect. But when I order something from Nordstrom, I don't even think about it for seven days. Because I know that if I order something from Nordstrom, it's going to be seven to 10 days. But that's the expectation they set. So I'm cool with that as a, as a customer, right? So if we don't know what expectation and the, the challenge that we have, the opportunity we have as, as salespeople on a, on a retail sales floor is we have, we can't set an overarching expectation the same way that Nordstrom or Amazon does. We're setting expectations specifically by product and based on what we have in stock. And so if that's frustrating, you know, ask yourself, do you know what's in stock? Do you know what they can, do you know what a take with is? You know what the two day lead time is, or do you know what you have to order and you have to tell your customer, I don't know, but the expectation that like people typically don't get very upset 
um, because things don't go their way or aren't ideal for them. People get upset because the wrong expectation wasn't the right expectation wasn't communicated. Like that's why I get angry about stuff. Like I can, I can deal with something being, you know, frustrating, but it's like, if I make a reservation, then I expect when I get there and go, Hey, party of four for Stuart, that they're going to sit me down in two or three minutes. But if when I make my reservation, they go, Hey, we're, we're very backed up with short staff. So uh, please be here on time. And we'll try to seat you within 15 minutes of your arrival. I get there and I'm cool for 20 minutes. But if they don't set the expectation, even if it's true and they're doing the best they can, I'm losing my mind after seven minutes because I had a reservation. Right. So are we willing to set the right expectations and do the work to know what expectations to set? Yeah, I, you know, the first thing that went off in my head as I was asking the question is manage expectations. But you took it a step further and you actually went backwards, which was brilliant, is what are the expectations? What are your expectations, Mr. Mrs. Jones? What are your expectations? Yeah, and, and then, that starts with their need, you know, like. Well, do they, if they're there to buy a mattress and they just moved here and they don't have a mattress, they need one right now. But if they, if they're, if they're like, oh, we're starting to look and so they, you have a mattress. Yes, I have a mattress. Like how, how bad is it? Like how uncomfortable are you? When would you like to, when would you like to, to be sleeping on a new mattress? Like, and they go, ah, you know, you know, whenever we find the right one. Well, then stock doesn't matter. In stock doesn't matter. Find the absolute best one that you have on the floor, sell them that one, set the right expectations for when they'll get it, they'll be fine. But if they got to sleep on the floor tonight, they can't wait six weeks. And if you don't know. Yep. And if you don't have it in stock, you better find a. Listen, I'm going to tell you a funny story. Many years ago, it still applies today. Had a customer working with them, uncovered an expectation, had to have it like now. Well, we were one of five stores. We were large showrooms, 30,000 foot showrooms was a big showroom back then, 30 years ago. And and, um, they had to have it. And I went to the uh, store manager and I said, they want something now. And I don't have anything that I know of in the back. Do you have any ideas? Now, this is an interesting thing because, you know, in a lot of ways, sometimes your bosses are your mentors, right? Or can be. And I said, I don't know what to do. And he said, oh, I have an idea. And we sold off an old floor sample that was a great mattress but we didn't carry that line anymore. We gave them a great deal and they were as happy as could be and they took it with them. But we literally had to pull all the uh, sheets off of the vignettes to find the one that he knew he had. So I didn't even know we had this mattress, but he did. And we came up with a creative solution. But I want to switch. I want to talk about chapter six, the digital mentor. And I, you know, I love this quote by Gary V. The internet doesn't care that you're not interested in learning. It will continue to evolve without you. And 
I, my hat is off to you for finding a, a Gary V uh, quote without the F word in it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that one wasn't easy. <laughs> Mentors come in all sizes and shapes. They're everywhere and anywhere, but we have to be willing to see them. And, and the one thing that I love about your book is it really opens our eyes to the potential of where they can be and that it doesn't have to be an apprenticeship. No, no. You know, there's, there's a, there's a saying that goes, uh, the person that does not read has no advantage over the person that cannot read. And, you know, like there's, there's the, there's the other saying is knowledge is power. Well, that's, that's less true today than it was before. Like that gets less true every day in our, in our culture. You know, you think it wasn't very long ago in the history of humanity where most people were illiterate. And so the people that held the knowledge held the power. But thanks to things like technology and the Internet and the printing press, like technology has commoditized knowledge. And so if you have an Internet connection, if you have a cell phone, like you have more knowledge at your disposal than any other people group in the history of the universe, with the exception maybe of the aliens that we're going to find out about. And, and <laughs> in terms of on this planet, right, you have more at your disposal. And so, like, this can be escapism, like, play games and scroll through social media, like, go for it. But if you're not using that for development, like, YouTube is free. Like, I agree that you should spend, you know, 3% on your development, but you can, you don't ever have to spend money if you don't want to, to develop in meaningful ways over, over time, you know? And like, that's, that's been the biggest thing for me is when I want to learn something, I learn about it before I ask anybody about it, you know? Let's dive into that. So I'm sorry, Doug. I cut you off, and no, guys, no. God knows I'm great at that. I am the best cutter offer in the world, and, and I apologize up and down, and then you give me a pass because I'm an old man, and I appreciate that. But one of the things that I've always said to sales pros that work on our retail floors: when you come on a floor, and I, I you know, I I worked at a little furniture store called Price Chopper, and it was. 6,000 square feet. And then I worked at a store called Kronheim's Furniture and it was 30,000 square feet. And the uh, merchandise that was available by order, a special order and catalogs, it was like a quantum leap and I was freaking out. And so what I did is I, I looked through... Uh, I, I I would take a category and, and one day it would be recliners and I would sit in every recliner and I, I'll never forget this. Doug, you'll laugh when you hear this. So we had a Stratford gallery and uh, I gave our, our store manager a list of all the chairs that had cracked frames after I spent like three or four hours in there. And he goes, well, Pete, that's very nice of you, but they, that's the way they come. It's just the way it is. So I thought that was interesting. But but learn everything you can with your own eyes and ears. What Doug just said, it's huge. After you cannot learn anymore, 
then start to ask your teammates. And then after you've exhausted that, then go to your store manager. So you've learned everything you can learn on your own. You learned everything you can from your teammates, which actually you should, that should never end. Um, and you want to see a funny YouTube uh, uh, channel, uh, a video, the story of when I was uh, on top of a dresser overlooking a vignette, trying to learn how Angel Gutierrez, God rest his soul, who's the greatest retail salesperson I ever worked for. I wanted to hear how he closed the sale. So I literally climbed on top and he looked up and saw me. It's a whole nother story for another time. But learn everything that you can from everybody on the floor, then go to your sales manager. And then when those reps come in, God willing, they come in once a month or once a quarter. Um, if you're lucky enough to see reps these days, um, ask them the questions that you have and never stop learning. And, and you know, something that didn't exist when I started in 1982, if YouTube was around, I didn't know about it. And I go on YouTube constantly, Doug, and YouTube is a great resource. But there are many resources like that too. There is... If you're hungry for knowledge, there's really great news. You're right. You don't have to spend 3% of your income. If you're hungry, you're really hungry on LinkedIn, you spend some time on LinkedIn, there are some really smart people putting out great content on LinkedIn. Uh, YouTube, it's a great resource. Jump in there, Doug. You had something and I cut you off. I apologize. Oh, no, no, no. Thank you for that. That's, that's, really, that's really valuable context. Um, you know, when we when we think about knowledge is less powerful today than it was before because it's been commoditized, that <clears throat> that tells us that context is the most important thing. Like, Pete, I can remember growing up being on the sales floor, customers would come in like wanting to know information about products. And they would they would see salespeople as experts about the products. And so they would listen to them. And I can remember, gosh, I was 16 and you know. Grown people were coming in and asking me content questions about products. And that doesn't happen nearly as much anymore because they can get all of the content, the content they want. They can get all the knowledge they want online. They're, they're reading reviews. They're asking their friends. They're posting should on, we, on social media, right? Should we just let the 800 bear out of the closet? Your customers sadly believe that they know more than you. And even sadder yet, Oftentimes, they're correct because you have not earned the right to even be on that sales floor because you haven't done the work, because you haven't been a good student. Now, now that I slapped you up one side, let me help you. You can learn and you can learn fast. And, you know, there are great salespeople that you can, you can emulate and do things similar to. And there are horrible salespeople that you should look at what they say and do and never say or do anything that they do. Uh, but there are lessons everywhere you look. There are mentors. There are anti-mentors. Uh, they're everywhere. And you, if you're hungry, if you're really hungry and you really want to get better, it's all there. I mean, there was no LinkedIn. There was no YouTube when I was a kid. I mean, it just didn't exist. 
you got something, Doug, I can tell. Talk, talk to me. <laughs> well, it, I, I think we have to ask ourselves the question, man. Like, do we want to be right or do we want to make money? You know, because you can know all the right stuff. You can know all the facts. You can know the truth about whatever it is. But it doesn't matter what the truth is. It matters what the customer thinks and believes. So what we have to do is contextualize the knowledge that they have, right? So it's 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 a matter of being able to ask questions to help them process through the information that you have so that it, it corresponds and then contextualize the information that they've went and got, right? Because it doesn't matter if you're right, if they don't buy anything, you know, that doesn't, that doesn't matter. So do you want to be right? Or do you, you know, we get, we get really romantic about our products, you know? Well, you know, that goes back to taking somebody where they're at and bringing them to where they actually need to go. And you're never going, you know, the art of selling, the art of persuasion is bringing them where they're at with the knowledge that they have and encouraging them to open up their minds. But a lot of it has to do with your skill and your temperament. You know, if you get upset that they think they're smarter than you or they know more, if that upsets you fundamentally, you need to find a way for that not to happen because it's going to happen too many times every day. You're going to end up just destroying yourself. You need to understand that's where they're at. It's my job as a professional sales pro who knows 10 times more than them. And if that's not true, you need to make it true. Bring them where they are without belittling them, without making them feel small. Kindness instead of niceness, right? Help them get the piece of spinach out from their tooth, right? We talked about that earlier. And get them to a place where they come to accept the right answer for their problem, which may not be what they thought it was when they first walked in the store. And that is the art of selling. It always has been, and it always will be. Um, but today, you need to understand that your customers are going to go and they're going to read reviews. They're going to go on YouTube. They're going to go on LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter, you name it, Instagram. It doesn't matter. Put your favorite social media in there. They're going to do it and they're going to believe some things that are true and they're going to believe some things that aren't true. And it's up to you as a sales professional to unwind that. So we went from doing a review on your book all the way to a mini sales lesson for our sales pros, but that's good. And we're still not done. And so I didn't want to go much past the hour, but I do want you to wrap up with any thoughts that, that you have. And I want to remind any Anyone that's watching this, go to my YouTube channel, like, subscribe to the channel, make a comment, tell me, Pete, send me my book and don't charge me freight. I'm not going to charge you anything. Uh, I'll get a hold of you. Um, do not put your private information there. I'm easy to get a hold of. You can call me at 419-560-3169 and 
say, Pete, send me my book and I'll double check it and I'll send you the book. It's right here. It'll go out the door today to you. And I hope that you get as much value out of it as I have. Doug, you have the last word, my friend. You know, I, I think it could be it could be helpful to circle back to the very beginning where you you read the inside cover of my book, and, and I and I and I really think that's that's the most important part of my book for you is 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 what I hand wrote on the inside because I, it it's really true that that I don't think I would have written my my book without without two things uh, your book and a book from my friend named Jason Goldberg called Prison Break. And the reason that's true is because you guys being close to me and writing your books humanized the experience and let me see that it was something that I could obtain as well. And, you know, if you, when, you, when you wonder, is it worth it for me to, to, to do the work, to earn the right? Is it, is it worth it for me to develop myself in, in meaningful ways? You know, the, the book that I wrote is, I think, is the answer to that. Because, you know, when you, when you do the work like you have and you did, Pete, not only do you get to benefit yourself and you get to benefit others, but you also get to inspire other people to do things that they may not have done in the first place. Um, and so, you know, for, for people listening, regardless of if you're doing it for yourself or for others, when you do it, you benefit everything and everybody around you, whether that's evident in the beginning or not. So um, I'll end by saying, uh, you know, Pete, you've, you've been really valuable, valuable to me for, for many reasons. So thank you for the work you've done, the work you're doing, and, uh, and for your friendship, man. It's, it's an honor. Now, the honor is mine, Doug. Uh, in in an industry that doesn't have as many young, talented people as I'd like, when I go to uh, market, sometimes I'm I'm just shocked. It's like the the zombie apocalypse. Uh, you know, I'm seeing eighty year old sales reps, and I'm like, dude, what did you do wrong that you still have to work? <laughs> and and listen, I understand that there's some cats out there that that they they made it, they got it. And this is what they love. And I, I get it. I, I, I love what I do too. And, but Doug, you are by far the greatest talent that I have ever met in this industry. And I just have to say this. Um, I knew you're going to leave the industry. I was as pleased as punch when you came back. I don't know that we're going to be able to keep you forever I think that the good Lord has a lot of plans that neither one of us really understand for you. Your story is compelling. The knowledge that you impart to all of us. And, and Doug, you need to understand something. You're my mentor. Yes, you're my anti-mentor every now and again when you really make me think. And thank you for that. Yeah. Uh, you know, if you uh, the unexamined life, it's true, is not worth living. You you have to question everything. And but but in many significant ways, you are my worldview mentor too. Um, you know, some of the ideas, uh, nobody supported my book more than you did. Uh 
when when it when it came out and still do. So I appreciate you coming on. I know you're a busy guy and I'm sorry I went over today, but uh thank you so much for coming on and sharing. And listen, let's come come back on and we'll talk about something else. I mean I didn't even get half done with my questions, but that's okay. I knew that was going to happen. Uh, and anybody out there, if you want to learn and just be a great student and become the best person that you can be and the best professional that you can be, get this book, Five and a Half Mentors. Anything that Doug Stewart says or does is usually very inspiring and enlightening. And get that book now on Amazon. Thank you, Doug. God bless you. You're welcome. Thank you, Pete. You're welcome.